This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Charlene Hunter-Galt has spent nearly 60 years chronicling history as a journalist. But when she was just 19, she played a central role in making it. On January 9th, 1961, she and her classmate Hamilton Holmes bravely walked onto the University of Georgia campus, becoming the first two black students to integrate the school. Her career took her to some of the most respected media outlets in the country, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, and the PBS NewsHour. But as one of the few Black journalists reporting for a largely white audience, she knew she had to do more. So she made it her mission to cover, in her words, Black people in ways they were rarely portrayed in the media, in their full humanity. Her new book, My People, Five Decades of Writing About Black Lives, is a collection of many of her writings. Here's our conversation. It's a huge honor to have you, Charlene, and I'm excited to talk to you about this book because when I think about your reporting through the years, I think how your work really so well reflects where we are as a country and how we've evolved or we haven't evolved through the decades. And I'm curious why you thought it would be helpful to put this collection of your reporting of over the last five decades together now? Well, it's been a little bit of time putting it together, but we've had some challenges for a little bit of time. And one of the things I noticed is that while it seems as if we are getting more uh, representation by people of color on the air, um, we still have a bit of a ways to go to get good, equal representation of all people, especially people of color. And I also think that as we have some today, some opposition to teaching black history, I think that I'm hoping that this book will help people who are in that arena Mm -hmm. uh, to appreciate that black history can be positive. And part of the problem is that over the years, we haven't had enough good, quote unquote, coverage of people of color for people to understand why it's important to have good representation of people of color in the media. And I'm just hoping, uh, because I'm willing to talk to anybody about this. And so I'm hoping that this book will, in fact, help people who are having issues with Black history to stop <laughs> stop having issues. But it's it's been so weaponized, hasn't it? And I think people don't even necessarily it's sort of i always say people have opinions without portfolio they don't even understand 
the nuances and the complexities of the topic about which they're speaking or opining. And I hope that people who may be in that category who have misrepresented critical race theory or think that talking about black history is designed to make white people just feel guilt, shame, and and bad about themselves, that, that they are able to be open to a sensible conversation about what we're really talking about, you know? I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. And also, I want to say, as I've been saying, that we have to be very careful about generalizations. Because from the beginning of time, our time here in America, we've had white people involved in our struggle, that is the struggle of black people uh, for equal opportunity. And some have died for us. And again, I hope to make that clear uh, as I talk to people, as I go around the country with the book. I want to talk to people who may not see things through the same lens as I do, Mm -hmm. but I'm willing to talk to them. And and I'm willing to, I'm hoping that they want to talk to me because I think that we can get somewhere. I really do. Now, maybe that's the PK that is the preacher's kid (laughs) in me. But um, I, I still feel that we can make a difference if we share our stories and if we are willing to talk to people who don't necessarily agree with us. I haven't had too much of that. But I don't know if you remember, but when I was in South Africa covering apartheid, one of the things that was important to me was to talk to the people who was who were a part of the apartheid system mm-hmm. so we could get into their heads and maybe they could get into. Well, not necessarily my head because I wasn't giving my opinion. <laughs> right. But I was asking questions that may have indicated what my opinion was, but it worked out and they were not hostile. And so I really do take from that and other experiences that I've had with people who don't always see things the same way. I'm hoping that this book will help us keep on that track. Why, why do you think we've lost our ability to have those conversations, to basically sit with people from different backgrounds, different sort of circumstances, different lenses, and actually kind of listen to each other? Because, you know, Charlene, I just don't think that happens anymore. Well, we have media now that promotes uh, difference in a, and and negatively when it comes to the people I've written about and also black history, I'm not sure how that came about, but I have a thought now that you've asked that question. You're so brilliant with your questions all the time. Oh, you're so nice, Charlene. I'm just naturally Charlene, I'm just asking what, you know, I mean it's 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 what I what pops into my head and, you know, trying to trying to come up with solutions for some of this stuff. Well, you know, one of the things I've done on the NewsHour, PBS NewsHour, is do a series on conversations about race and people who have come up with solutions. And they are out there. And I just think that, you know, there was a time when we had three channels. And sometimes I wish we could go back to that. I know, I know. But, you know, I I was on this... um, disinformation commission with Rashad Robinson and uh, right. color of change. And, you know, whenever I would, would be nostalgic about the good old days, he would say, you know, Katie, those days had very few opportunities for, for people of color, you know? And so um, I, I feel the same way because it felt like it could be controlled in terms of the editorial veracity and the content of things, but in terms of opportunities, um, that that they weren't necessarily the good old days. Well, I think that far too many people today are getting their information from Twitter, right, and 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 other vehicles that 
require minimum wordage and not a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went on Twitter this morning and, well, it was not what I hope it could be. But I talked to a very educated, intelligent woman the other day, and she was complaining about something going on in the country. And I said, well, what 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 do you watch? Who do you watch on television? She said, I don't watch television anymore. And I think a lot of people have just gotten turned off. But we can't, you know, it comes out of civil rights movement that I grew up with. And I'm just, I tell people, I don't feel no ways tired. That's a phrase from, from the civil rights movement. But we've got to figure out better ways of communicating with people. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, a lot of our local newspapers are, are dying. Oh, I know. Um, even our black newspapers are dying. And that's inexcusable because in spite of the economic situation that has gone on for a number of years, there are people with money and people with money who could have influence with that money if they used it to those ends. So, you know, I think maybe some of my wealthy friends are going to be upset about that, but I, I think that's the way to go. We've we've got to figure out how to communicate in a in a positive way even with people who don't agree with us. And I just think if we could sit down with them in quiet spaces and talk, I think it could make a difference. I would like to share some of my stories with people who are now saying they don't want this history taught in schools. I would like to go there and and talk to some of those people. I mean, our information has been so deleted from everything. I mean, I was at a school in Sarasota, Florida, predominantly black, and a predominantly black professor had invited me. And I had mentioned uh, the the Brown decision, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which outlawed separate but equal in schools. And on the way out to the car, this lovely young black woman teacher walked with me and she said, can I make a confession? I said, of course. And I thought she's going to tell me something really, you know, <laughs> sexy. <laughs> She said, I myself, black woman who grew up in Mississippi, and she must have been in her late 30s, early 40s. She had never heard of the Brown decision. Now, that's inexcusable. Come on. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really it says something about our education system and how it needs to be fixed as well. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. But when it comes to the media, I was just while you were talking, pulling up something on my phone, which I saw earlier this morning that said Americans distrust in the media is at a record high. As for the first time ever, the percentage of Americans with no trust at all in the media is higher than the percentage of those with a great deal or fair amount combined, according to a recent Gallup poll. Did that make you cry? Oh, it just broke my heart, but I I know I'm not surprised and I think as you know, NewsHour is one of the last uh, you know, news programs. I mean, I guess the evening news, but those are so short, 22 minutes, but right. where they're sort of haven't been co-opted by the left or the right. 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 And uh and they're doing a good job and they've even become more diverse. Um, and, and, you know, they've always been committed to what Jim Lehrer used to say, you know, give people good information and they'll do the right thing. Yeah. But we're challenged today about how to get that good information to people. Cause not everybody like you is tuning into the news hour. <laughs> right. When we come back, Charlene recalls her first harrowing few days at the University of Georgia. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. 
NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, let's talk a little bit about your career for people who are not as familiar with your extraordinary body of work. I know that you loved Brenda Starr as a girl, and so did I. <laughs> I loved Brenda Starr. I used to, and and I, I used to love her clothes. I don't know when I was a little girl. Right. And um, but did I, you know? Did you know? Because I think it only became a, a known recently that the person who created Brenda Starr was a woman. I didn't. But it was it was it was during those years when there was segregation of, you know, that affected women as well as people of color. And so she went, I think it was by a pseudonym, but she sure did create. And, you know, once I here's what was so wonderful about that. When I told my mother in a segregated town, and society that I wanted to be like Brenda Starr. She didn't say, oh, no, that's not what a little black girl could do in this time. She said very casually, "Okay, if that's what you want to do. And that inspired me. And then God bless your mom, by the way. Yes, Lord. And then I went to an all black school that was, you know, didn't have the same things that the white schools had. But they had our history. And that's when Ida B. Wells mm-hmm. became my second role model because Ida B. Wells was a black journalist back in the days of segregation. And yet she she worked as a journalist and she worked as an activist trying to bring about the promise of our constitution and democracy. So I had a black woman and a white woman who were my inspirations, and I'm very proud of that and grateful for it. I wonder why there has never been a biopic of Ida B. Wells. I don't know. You know, that's something that we can do. You want to help me out? Sure, sure. Let's get together. Let's do my it. son is an actor and a director in California, and he's always looking for stuff. Well, so ask get- him <laughs> and say, this is this is territory that needs to be covered and tackled. Well, your mom encouraged you. And then, of course, you were one of the the first two students to integrate the University of Georgia, and you volunteered to be that person. Is that something your mom encouraged you do, to do as well, Charlene? My mom supported it, but I was encouraged to do it by some very progressive Black men in Atlanta. M. Carl Holman was one. You may know that name. And um, there were, it was a group of activist black men, one was a doctor and I forget the others right now, but uh, they were all very progressive people. And they felt that in Georgia, I think it was maybe 1959 and the Brown decision was uh, five or six years earlier that it was time for Georgia to step up. So they came to my high school and asked the principal for two top students. And Hamilton and I were good friends, but we were also competitors. Uh-huh. And so when they, you know, the principal set, sent for us because we were first and second in our class. And we said, of course. And so they took us down to Georgia State. Well, here's how our history created armor for us, armor in our minds, hearts, brains, everything. Because Hamilton was, I have to admit, 
looked at the curriculum. I had looked at it too, but he was the first to speak. And he said, this doesn't have what's going to prepare me for what I want to do. I want to be a doctor and I don't like this curriculum. And then I said, yeah, me too. And then he went on, he stepped out on the deck of the school and looked north and pointed and said, I want to go there. Well, that was UGA in Athens, Georgia. And it was um, the reason the men sort of hesitated was because they didn't know anybody in Athens. And the way down there was through uh, places where Ku Klux Klaners had headquarters and things. But in the end, they figured out how to protect us. And that's how we got there. Three days after you arrived on campus, students rioted outside your dorm room. And in fact, one of them even threw a brick through your window. What do you remember about that night? I remember being surprised, uh, being a black Southern girl brought up in the AME church. I was first upset because the brick caused the rocks, uh, caused the glass out of my window to get all over my good clothes, which I hadn't had time to unpack. And then the house mother came and said, you know, the dean is on the way here to suspend you for your own safety. And the tear gas that ostensibly had broken up the rioters outside was still looming in the air. And so the next day, when I got back to Atlanta, taken by the State Patrol, Hamilton and I, um, I was asked by a reporter, how scared was that? I said, scared? I wasn't scared. And I hadn't focused on it, but I wasn't. And so they said, why not? And that's where the PK in me comes out, because my (laughs) mom used to send my dear mother used to send me to my father's parents who were a preacher. And I said my grandmother was the saint. And she used to teach me Bible verses every day. I didn't want to learn them because I wanted to climb the mango trees and run around and be a tom girl. Uh-huh. But um, uh, the the verse that clearly was in my head, and I've looked at pictures of myself, and I said, yes, that's what I was thinking. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me all the days of my life. That was what was going on in my head. And I didn't even, you know, it was so much a part of my psyche that I I didn't even realize it, but I wasn't afraid. And, you know, you look at some of the pictures and I have my mouth on a, a, a Virgin Mary statue. You know, I have a lot of identities and one of them is a PK, a preacher's kid who was taught all those things. And I still, I did a book talk the other day with the Reverend Otis Moss III out at the Trinity United Church in Chicago. And we went, now he's a lot younger than me and and a brilliant minister. And we talked about uh, the role of religion. And, And I think that while not everybody is into, you know, religion, I think there are lessons that we can all learn from and share and be protected by. I I talk about our history as a suit of armor. And part of my armor was created by my sainted grandmother. And I think that, you know, not everybody's going to be religious and go to church and all that. But I think there are lessons for even people who don't believe in church and whatever else it's associated with. Well, clearly it gave you an enormous amount of strength. And I think in faith and and religion, also you can find a life philosophy, right? right. That that obviously guided you through the years and, and became, you know, incredibly important, gave you a foundation to face the many travails that that you faced in your life. Even religion today is divided. And I've listened to some people on television uh, using religion in what I find is a very offensive way. Well, it's kind of been ever thus though, right, Charlene? I mean, you know, (laughs) you know, distorting and twisting religion and, you know, causing all kinds of strife and wars and, you know, I mean, yeah, but the only way we can get past that is to do what you and I are doing right now and what you have done all of your career, which is to try as best 
you and I can to tell the truth. And and sometimes we make mistakes. That's why in newspapers they have correction, right? <laughs> they have correction things uh, because we're we're human and right. we do make mistakes. But for the most part, I think we try to do our jobs and not make mistakes and 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 double check and triple check our sources. You were hired by the legendary editor of The New Yorker, William Shawn, after you graduated and you became the magazine's first black staff writer. You've said that you were committed to writing about black people in ways that really they were rarely portrayed in the media in their full humanity. Right. You know, it's just so strange to me that we think this was not that long ago, Charlene. And and, (laughs) (laughs) and, 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 and yet and yet people were not writing about black Americans this way. And 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 where did that idea come from? Well, you know, I may not have thought about it quite that way, but uh, I did. And, and The New Yorker, of course, published some of the greatest writers of all time. I right. mean, one of my heroes was J.D. Salinger uh, and others, of course. But, you know, you always look for openings where you can make a difference. And when I look down at the very talented, wonderful writers like Calvin Trillin and Jerry Jonas and so many others I could mention, Mary McCarthy and uh, all of those, uh, no one was really going into Harlem and spending time with people. And I think the only way you can, I mean, you can go and cover a quick one day story and and do the who, what, when, where, and how. But it's another thing to go in depth and present people. And you have to do those quickie stories, but nobody, at, as I can remember, were really doing any in-depth, and they didn't have to be long to be in-depth, but nobody was looking at Black people the way I experienced in my daily life. Right. Because I lived with among them. And so, and also I wanted scoops. Right, right. (laughs) But but that wasn't the the main reason. It turns out I was getting scoops. But, you know, to go to somebody, to to, to talk to somebody like Louis Michaud, a tiny little black man who had a bookstore uh, close to 125th Street and and, and, uh, Lenox, that wasn't Lenox, 125th Street and 7th. And, And he was just a delight. And he would entertain, he was entertaining prominent black writers and even white writers who were coming there because he had one of the largest collections by and about black people, probably, well, certainly in New York, but maybe even in the country at that time. And he was just delightful. He spoke in couplets (laughs) and he was race conscious too, because in a very, uh, uh, what shall I say, aggressive way, He used to say, he spoke in couplets, and he used to say things like, the white man's dream of being supreme has turned to sour cream. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was, was, you know, one way, you know, we talked earlier about how you can communicate with people and get them to understand and accept what you're talking about. Well, poetry is one way, although I don't know how many white people would have liked that. Uh, that couplet, but he had other couplets. And he also had this collection of books that white writers who were interested in looking uh, at the black experience and black history would come there and study them. So we've had people who, white people, black people, Asian people, all kinds of people who have been interested. It's just that it's been difficult. It was difficult up to a point to get those stories published. You later set up a, a Harlem bureau for the New York Times. Right. And and did you face much resistance doing that? No. I mean, the only it was I wouldn't call it resistance because Arthur Gelb was a wonderful city editor, at metropolitan editor at the New York Times. And he was the one There were several black reporters already at the Times. And they had recommended to him that he talk to me because I was coming to New York. I'd had journalistic experience with NBC and stuff. And so uh, he saw me and one of the questions he asked, he said, okay, now 
if you if I sent you to Harlem to cover a story about a black person, man, I think he said, who had done something bad or who was in trouble, would you be able to tell that story? And I said, I don't know. It would depend on what I found when I reported because so many black people are wrongfully accused of things they didn't do. So it requires some looking into. Well, I guess the answer was okay because he hired me and then a few years later, he let me set up the Harlem Bureau. So, you know, I owe that to him and all of the other editors who trusted me to do my job. Fast forward to your time on the news hour and you write about an experience with a white guest who seemed surprised that you actually were the one interviewing him and apparently said to you, I guess it beats being a hairdresser. <laughs> yes, that was at the news hour. Yeah. And, you know, I said to myself, okay, be cool and respond. But you see here again, I had an opportunity to say, go to hell. But I also had an opportunity not to react. And to open uh, his mind, right? And to open his mind. So I think that while a little bit more pressure is put on some of us to represent, as it were, um, that's our job. That's what we, well, that's what I was born to do, I think. But so many of us, that's our job. Uh, not to react in a way that, you know, further angers the person, but to try to help educate and do it in a gentle way. Uh, I don't I don't think that, you know, a boxer is going to be the one to make the difference. Now, you see, here's the thing. I mentioned a boxer. Well, up until I started writing and and joining these uh, news organizations, the people who got covered were people who were doing extraordinary things like Muhammad Ali and, and you know, sports people or, or actors or, you know, people in unusual circumstances. Uh, but was their personal life being covered? No. And so that was part of, again, the motivation for me to do this book. Our people were not all prize fighters, winning prize fighters at that, for that matter. But they were doing all kinds of things. And I think it made them, the pieces that I was doing, I hope, made them human. Because as I wrote about uh, Africa and the way it was being covered years ago, it was all the four Ds, death, disaster, despair, um, and other things that, uh, you know, were negative. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What do you think about the whole debate that's going on in newsrooms? I would think particularly at the New York Times about the role of journalists in society and the role of objectivity, if that even exists. 
I don't like objectivity. My computer is objective, although today it had a problem (laughs) (laughs) getting my picture on your screen. (laughs) Uh, I've never liked that word. I like fair and balanced. Well, that's Fox's. That's Fox's motto. Yeah. Fair and balanced. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think it's true if you practice it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But I also... I'm a big proponent these days of a coalition of the generations because I think that you're younger than me and there are others younger than both of us, but there are some older than us. And I think that we need to be able to share our experiences with the younger generation and talk to them about our successes and how we how we achieve them. And if you want to take positions, then get on an editorial board. Um, If you want to take positions, then find vehicles that allow you to give your opinion. But if you're going to call yourself a journalist, then you have to adhere to the uh, principles that make good journalists. And that is to, you know, give people good information so that, again, as Jim Lehrer said, so that they can make good decisions about themselves. You you are not everybody, and you are communicating with a wide range of people, and I think you have to appreciate that as you go forward. I think that you don't want to, if you tell the truth or be fair and balanced, I mean, today you may shut off some people, but I think that you can't allow that to 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 inhibit trying to do the best you can with what you have. I think that was Joe Lewis, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That. Doing the best you can with what you have to give them good information so that they can do the best they can with what they have. And I think that we have to communicate with these young people, which I try to do every single day that, I'm approached by one or another, and I'm I, I'm happy to uh, have time to sit with them and talk about uh, our profession and how we keep it true to its mission and calling. I think it's been very tough in the age of social media. I see people trying to be fair and balanced, and they're eviscerated by the left or they're eviscerated by the right because they're not reflecting the views of that particular segment of the population. And it is, it is, I think that's why news in many outlets has become so bifurcated. You know, they, they are, are basically getting affirmation instead of information as a friend of mine said, viewers are. (laughs) That's a good line. That's a good phrase. And so I think it's extremely hard to be a, a an old fashioned, if you will, journalist who's trying to delve into a topic in a way that even gives somebody who is on the other side a platform. And also, but, by the way, there's so many extremists out there. You do wonder if you know, who you should be giving a platform to. Should you be interviewing election deniers who say, you know, again and again, despite everything to the contrary, that the election was rigged? You know, it's 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 hard to be an objective journalist, especially in today's, you know, today's world. You know, speaking of the younger generation, I mean, I'm 80, but I like to think I'm woke. Yeah. Uh, and... And so I just like to communicate with them and 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 help uh, create armor for them to challenge uh, when challenge is, is necessary and important. And to be sure, there are going to be people whose minds you will never change. But that's not our job. Our job. And and the other problem I'm ha- though the other problem I'm having with a lot of the uh, newspapers, especially, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to name anyone. Uh, <laughs> New York but Times. The articles are just when, when they are up against social media. Some of them, and I won't say which ones, unless you press me. Uh, <laughs> but 
but some of them have gone in the opposite direction. Even I get exhausted and, and often don't finish some of these articles today in respected, respectable papers, but the articles go on and on and on. And I don't know what's caused that because I'm not sure that's the best way to combat or go up against Twitter mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. writing 5,000 word pieces that could have been 750 words. Now, when I sit down to write an article today for somebody, I tend to go a little bit over, but then I've fortunately had good editors who've said, well, now what about this? Do we really need this paragraph? Or can we sum this up this way? So, you know, we hope for good editors who can, who can help us, but I don't know what has caused this retreat from the 750 word piece that tells you in the opening what it's about, tells you in the second paragraph what you're going to talk about in the piece, and then another five or 600 words that gives you all you need to be in especially well informed. Mm-hmm. That's just me. Yeah. But um, as I said, you know, given my years of experience as a journalist with very good editors, I just don't understand that trend. In That's interesting because, yes, it seems to be working against, uh, you know, the prevailing winds and people with short attention spans. On the other hand, right. you know, you don't want to, you do want to have deep, highly researched reporting too, right? But you just don't know who if it's reaching. Yeah, but you can do that in 750 words or 1,500. But, you, but you, you know, and the other thing is that when I worked for the New York Times, you had to tell if you were doing a news piece, you had to tell in the first paragraph what the story was about. And in the second paragraph, you had to expand on that. And then for another, you know, 500 words, uh, open up more of that story. And there were also times when you did longer pieces for the magazine or or so forth. But the competition is social media. Right. And so somehow those among us who are concerned about informing people in a good way, I think need to figure out the best way to compete with social media. The media landscape has changed so much. Um, I'm 65, you're 80. And when we started out, it was a very different ball of wax. And now, um, as you said, social media is, is dominant in some ways. And people are creating their own echo chambers and good, good phrase and they're getting them you know through through their own sort of developing their own quote unquote communities et cetera et cetera would you would you recommend going into journalism today and do you think you would have been as, as attracted to the profession today as you were those years ago when you were reading Brenda Starr and telling your mom, gosh, this is what I want to do, mom. That's a tough question um, because I don't know. Uh, It would have depended, I guess, on my experience. Um, You know, back in those days, I saw the need uh, to fulfill a gap in news coverage, a gap about our people, mm-hmm. or or a gap that had not positive stories, but necessarily, but accurate stories about people of color, and and so I, I'm not sure. Going back over my history, if that is something I would still like to do, but I guess the best answer I can give you is. I don't see anything else I would want to (laughs) do. And is it something you would, you know, when young people say, Ms. Hunter Galt, I want to be a journalist. What do you think? What do you say to them? I say, great. 
That's really good. How are you getting prepared? That's that's what I say. And, you know, when I was um, promoting this book uh, before I had a, a publisher, I spoke with the head of a journalism uh, college. And he said, look, if what you have shown in this uh, in this interview is what is going into that book, I hope that every journalism college in this country will use it for uh, to teach their students. Now, I'm not self-promoting. Well, I guess that's what that amounts to <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but I didn't say it. I'm quoting. Yeah. Uh, I'm quoting uh, an editor. And then later, I spoke to someone, I won't say at which university, but he said, we are going to welcome this book for our young journalists. So there are people out there still in, in, in journalism colleges at the University of Georgia. I know they're doing that uh, at other colleges like the one I just mentioned, but didn't mention which college it was. So I think that there are leaders in the profession who people who have been in the profession or who or people who have studied the profession and have some historical sense of the role of journalists and journalism. And they are teaching young people. I, I met a young woman here on the vineyard the other day when I was doing a, an interview at the uh, local television station. She's what, about, I think she told me she was 24. Mm -hmm. But she is. She said, I'm following in your footsteps. And I cried. I, I, I mean, I didn't cry, but I had tears in my eyes, which, you know, amounted to almost crying. I was so proud of that. And one day I'm going to call her up because she's about to go to Korea where she wants to do some more work. And I'm going to just sit with her and I'm going to ask her, tell me, what, what was it about me that impressed you? And do you see your attitudes about journalism among other young people your age? And I think they're out there. They really are. It's just that in so many instances, they're finding fewer and fewer places to be uh, good journalists. That's why I was thinking that maybe, you know, we need to create some new new outlets that that somehow bridge these divides. We need to have a more robust presence in quote-unquote flyover states. We need to, you know, bridge some of these divides and give people a place to, to tell their stories. Yeah. And I think trust can be one back but you know right now it's it's a it's a big challenge isn't it it is it is but but we've always had challenges and we have overcome and so i i i live in the zone of hope and never never giving up and if you look back at our history We've had some major challenges all throughout our history, and we have overcome. And so I think that's why it's important to be sure that our history is taught accurately, because it's in that history that you find the the encouragement to keep on keeping on as they used to say, and I still say. <laughs> I still say to it on, too. Keeping on, you know? Hey, listen, I still say keep on trucking. So, yeah, <laughs> right, mean, right. but, um, you know, I like, I like what you said. I live in the zone of hope. And I'm going to think about that every time I get disheartened and depressed and feel that this country is just uh, sort of sliding into despair and 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 uh, is at a point of no return. I'm going to remember what you said, Charlene. I live in the zone of hope. Thank you. And you can take me to dinner one night and I can give you some more of that. OK, I would love that. Well, when you're in New York City, please let me know. Your book is called My People. It's a compilation of all the 
incredibly important stories you've done through the years, a tremendous body of work that I think is an excellent blueprint for journalists today and for future journalists who want to go into our profession. Charlene, thank you so much for talking to us today. Well, thank you. You've inspired me to keep on keeping on. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Right back at you. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.